welcome to another episode of The Unapologists. As always, we have the effervescent, beautiful Christopher Polson. We <laughs> have the... And this week you don't have library books behind you, so you don't look as smart. <laughs> nope, nope. And on this end we have a face for radio, Vito McKenzie. And we're actually joined by a very special guest today, Michael Hurd. Now, Michael is a person who truly humbles me and has done so in so many ways for so many years. He... Walking into his classroom as a student teacher, he mentored me and he really showed me right away what it really meant to have not only a student-centered classroom, but a deep classroom, and we're going to get into that later, but also how to bring creativity to the classroom and bring that creativity out of students, not just say, hey, go be creative, but really gear the classroom to let their creativity come forward. And so I'm really excited to have him on here. And he's also a person I've seen who's done meditation correctly, uh, not only in the classroom, but in his personal life. He's also an author. There's just so much to this man. I'm so I'm so happy he's here. So thank you for coming on the show. Welcome, Michael. Big thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. And I've got the face for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> and the voice. My goodness, that voice. Uh, <laughs> so, let's, <laughs> so, Michael, let's, let's get started. Um, can you kind of give us a bit about your background? You have a very uh, interesting background, like you have a very like, varied background before you even got into teaching. And, and could you just let us know, like, what were you up to before teaching? What brought you to teaching? And what kind of influenced your teaching methodology when you got there? I guess, um, I guess we'll start when I was in high school. And uh, I was really interested in uh, disc jockeying and music and organizing things along uh, social activities and so on. Uh, and then went into uh, college at Algonquin, studied medical laboratory technology, um, mostly because I flunked out of the University of Waterloo in my first year. <laughs> but while I was at Waterloo, I, I really realized that I enjoyed lab work, so I wanted to get into lab work. Um, did that for a while, um, broke away from lab work to open my own coffee house for a year uh, up in North Bay, Ontario. We called it the Muse Coffee House. And uh, got to know young people uh, through that um, endeavor, I guess and the types of things that they're interested in. And so many of them in the coffee house were searching for something. And they were definitely on the path to self-discovery, whether it showed up in uh, intellectual ways or as it relates to their sexuality and creative ways. And then the coffee house wasn't doing quite so well so we sold it after a year and uh, went to work in Saudi Arabia. And I had been there in 1989 on my own and uh, come home after one year. And I always thought I'd like to go back. So I went back with my wife and uh, we stayed for four years. And when we came back, there weren't as many healthcare jobs. So I thought this is a perfect opportunity for me to make a career change. And uh, so I went to university at Laurier and um, I was fascinated by psychology and religion. So I took those types of courses, got my BA. And while I was taking psychology, I took a course in the psychology of education. And there was a practicum aspect to that course, which put me in a high school. And I thought, this is where I want to be. It is just so vibrant and so alive compared to working in the laboratory, I guess. Now, how old were you when you made this change? Because a career jump is very frightening, especially as you get older. Yeah. Um, I got my bachelor's in the year 2000, so I would have been 38. And I went wow. to teacher's college and became a teacher at 40. Yeah, I was, I was really, once I got into teaching, I was glad I had that varied background behind me at the time. And I thought, this could really inform my teaching in some way. I'll, I'll take something, anything from it if I can. Um, 
being overseas definitely helps. Uh, if I want to teach religion, uh, living in an Islamic country and being able to travel to other places like uh, India and Egypt and other uh, locations, which I included as part of my own searching uh, for answers and meaning and whatnot. Um, yeah, I thought they, they gave me some foundation to take into the teaching of religion. So t tell me about that experience traveling around. So you, you're actually now, you're on your own search and you're seeing kind of religion play out on the ground in these places that most of us only ever read about or see on clips and get a very, well, distorted image of it, right? It's, it's a yeah. media perspective. So what was that like on the ground? Well, uh, when I first arrived there in 1989, the first thing that shocked me was when I was getting off the plane, I thought I would see a lot of people with machine guns and all that kind of terrorist type imagery that I'd been fed over the years. But when I got there, what I saw were a lot of people holding hands and kissing and it was just a very family oriented uh, atmosphere at the airport. It was really a surprise, a welcome surprise. Um, working there, getting to know uh, people who lived there and who were from there uh, really opened my eyes to uh, the beauty of the culture. I got a chance to really see some great things and meet some really excellent people. Wonderful. Oh, that, that's amazing. That, that's so amazing. Anything that what, uh, really came out to you in your own search there? Was it one of those, okay, this is interesting or was it okay i had this one moment at this one place this one time or well, just if you don't mind venturing there for a minute yeah i was looking at i guess i was always comparing what i knew to what i was learning and finding similarities and differences and and a lot of the similarities led me to um a sense that we could all get along <laughs> in some way, you know? Why do we have to be so, um, you know, it's us and them mentality when we could really see so much in, in what we share. And a lot of the differences we share are really cultural. They're not religious because the, the teachings are, you know, so similar. So, Let's go back to the classroom now. So you've graduated, you're changing careers, you get into your classroom and what's your approach? Like, I mean, this is, this is no, now you know where you want to be and it's your first time on your own in your classroom. What kind of, what, what, where was your head at, at that point? What kind of things were you, what direction were you looking to take it? Well, I didn't, I didn't really have a, a vision or a direction that I wanted to go. I, when I first got there, I was heavily uh, dependent on teachers' manuals and uh, course profiles and things like that, which had a lot of good ideas. And I found that I could take from those ideas and, you know, modify them, adapt them to things that I enjoyed. I mean, if I was going to be marking 90 essays in grade 12 religion, uh, you know, I'd want it to be something I'd like to read as well. Um, that's a question I have. So when you start teaching, um, are you immediately in uh, like a high school religion class? Are you in an element? Where where did you start um, to kind of give us some uh, a bit of a groundwork to understand um, these kind of first few years? Yeah, I was I was in the high school. Um for for quite a few years and then uh, more recently i was in the seven and eight wing but um a big difference between the two by the way absolutely and, <laughs> yeah. you're out of you're out of uh, your bachelor of education program and all of a sudden you have this grade 12 religion and um one of the things i'm just picking up from your story is um the, the idea of searching um, yeah. did you, did this kind of, uh, did this kind of, uh, I guess kind of roadmap noticing that people are searching for something, did that come out, uh, right from the get go when you were, uh, teaching in your own classroom too, even though, like you said, we're relying heavily on our teacher's guides and course profiles, 
but was there that spark of like these young people are searching for something that you noticed uh, when you owned the coffee house that you noticed in yourself that you noticed in your time uh, in Saudi Arabia? Did did that kind of uh, did that kind of lining continue through there? Totally. I mean, you you get used to the symptoms, and you you see when people are acting out or when people are uh, doing certain activities that you know bring up questions. I guess. I and, love uh, I love that. Get used. You get used to the symptoms of being able to see when someone's searching for something. Yeah, there's certain clues. I guess um, a lot of times the kids will try and trip you up when. <laughs> They'll think that they know a thing or two, so they try and trip you up or they try and, you know, vet you to see if you're legit, right? Are you for real or are you just putting on a show? Are you are you just faking it, you know? And uh, they can tell when you're faking it, obviously. They, they, have, they have a real sense for authenticity. And they're very suspicious. <laughs> Especially when it comes to religion, yeah. And that's one thing Chris and I have talked about endlessly. Like you, you have to be the real deal when you're, especially in a religion class or just as a teacher in general. Yeah. Uh, so let, let, let's go. You have to be authentic to your students. What does that look like in your classroom? Um, How do they know you're the real deal? Well, if they see me um, reading the Bible, I mean, they walk in the room. What am I doing? Am I on my phone? Am I reading scripture? Uh, what kind of music am I playing in the classroom? How am I dressed? Uh, do I have any jewelry? Is that jewelry representative of my faith? Uh, all kinds of little um, hints that you can give them that will say, hey, I'm, I'm maybe I'm playing a role, maybe I'm not, but I look the part at least. I've got to look the part. Oh, I, you're, you're hitting some sound bites that I that everyone needs to hear. <laughs> look the part right yeah. that's huge that's massive that's I, I love that because how often is the very first you know the moment if you're in a new classroom new year school's starting up soon people are going to know you know money talks and bs walks and they're going <laughs> to yeah. see it they're going to see it yeah and I, I love that you know you can talk until you're blue in the face but if you're not looking the part if you're not doing it it it's fake yeah which is and, almost worse than it not even being there and they're so entrenched with media they they get media so deeply in in their psyche that they know like you know things need to match things need to be in sync you know uh in order to like if you go to the theater you see a drama the characters are in costume they use certain types of voices and all that and i i also like I encourage the students to use different voices when we're reading aloud in the classroom. Okay, we're reading this. It's from 2000 years ago. Um, what would it sound like, you know, if you were in Jerusalem and someone was reading this to you in English? But, you know, so they try and come up with an accent and we'll, we'll look for accents on the internet or whatever to see if we can match it up a little. And uh, the accents actually help with retention. <laughs> this is like, uh, because uh, uh, there's no video i literally just went to my head and it exploded <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's so let's let's talk about that how do you come up with this like yeah where's that this, coming from like this creativity you bring to the classroom and um, you know i i've seen your assignments and i i've like i'm astounded at how you come up with them and you're always updating them too so wh where do they come from how like how how, how do you even think to put these together like i know creativity is such a hard thing to even um name and, and describe but what's your process for bringing that in it's a it's a it's a sort of a combination of the curriculum is the base and then i i look at what do i enjoy and so i relate what i enjoy to the base which is the curriculum or the the scripture or whatever and then i try to be relevant uh, with the kids like just can I relate to these kids on some level what do they like you know what do they enjoy and that's been really challenging lately as I get older I'm finding I, I'm not sure if I if I can relate to a lot of the kids especially the ones in grade seven and eight uh, 
they're very focused on things that I'm worried about and I would like to steer them away from those things, but they love them so much like YouTube culture. YouTube, sorry. YouTube culture. Like they're, they love YouTubers. If you ask a whole bunch of kids in a room, uh, grade seven and eight, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a YouTuber. That's Mm -hmm. their. And I'm thinking, how can I turn that around a little bit, you know, to maybe see what the real talents are. Um, sure, they can use YouTube to express those talents, but to to affect culture and to impress and uh, be a role model for other kids, you know, or other adults even, uh, how can we do that in a way that, you know, they'll feel like they're a YouTuber, but they're not really um, something that isn't true to who they are. Wow. Um, that, to me, that keeps coming back to that idea of, of uh, a, call, a, call, a group of people uh, who are searching for something. And there's a lot of flashy lights that can get in the way of th- that true search. Yes. I mean, we might have called it in the old days temptation. But yeah. it's really, it's distraction. I would say it's distraction. We're, we're highly distracted now by all the flashing lights and all the cool gadgets and and uh, maybe this uh, pandemic has kind of taken a step back from that. Maybe it hasn't. I'm not sure. We'll have to see in the fall. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's always the hope, right? What is the good that can come out of people actually having to confront themselves during mm-hmm. this time of quarantine? Yeah. Um, now, and the way you run your classroom, there's a lot of scripts that teachers have. They, like, they run a script, either what they assume a classroom should look like, or how they should act as a teacher. And you kind of shatter a lot of those. And <laughs> so um, like, how have you shattered many of the invisible scripts that should happen in a classroom? How do you identify them? And, and what are some scripts that you see are, uh, are good, dangerous, not so good? One of the scripts I'm concerned about, I don't know if I'm, I'm probably get some flack for this, but I sort of see it in the classroom, there's an element of fear. Um, the students, the really young students, they don't seem to respect the teacher unless they fear the teacher. So there has to, it seems like they they won't follow the rules because the teacher won't get mad at them or the teacher won't, I don't know, scare them or something. And I, in high school, I didn't see it as as much of an issue but uh, I noticed it in grade seven and eight. If I couldn't scare them into following the rules, they wouldn't follow them and they'd walk all over me. So I had to come up with a way where I could seem as if I was serious about something, but not to intimidate, just to kind of uh, send a message that this is the serious thing and those other things are Maybe not the serious thing, but right now this is serious. Serious doesn't have to be scary. So, I like that. Uh, I, I think and, that's a great point. Great point. And, and so, how would that look in seven eight? And then, how does how does that look in high school too? Because I know you spent a lot of time in high school, and that's where I saw you and yeah. a lot of these scripts as well. So, I guess maybe describe the difference. Like, I, I also high school seven eight. Now I'm back in high school again. Yeah. Um, so I know there's a world of difference between those two. Just a world. Yeah, the, the level of maturity was so much different in high school. I felt I could relate to the kids a little easier without having to be too strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I could meet them on the level, I guess, where they were at personally, emotionally. And uh, we could sort of develop a rapport that, uh, that seemed to work. Um, it wouldn't work every day. Definitely not. And the the scripts, like the way you describe the scripts, I sort of pictured as we're going to go in, we're going to do this, and this is how it's going to be. But for me, that only lasts about five minutes. After the attendance is taken, it just kind of goes where it needs to go. Uh, It has its own life, I guess. Like uh, even in my writing, I I find once once the book gets going, then it it just takes on a life of its own and I have to kind of keep that life going or follow where it wants to lead. I, I can't be too controlling. 
too so, much so, control it could ruin something amazing so you really just let go when when you're in the classroom you you're <laughs> willing to say you know what i don't have to be on a railroad track right now let's just kind of walk through the woods here and, and see what what's up yeah and i i really admit that i need a lot of help uh, in the classroom and i i depend on those uh, i guess intangibles the the spirit whatever you want to call it i depend a lot on that kind of guidance and that kind of assistance in in the in the classroom because i might react to something when i don't need to react to it i can just wait a sec take a step back and let the spirit guide me uh, or prompt me with an alternate solution to the challenge that i'm faced with well, I think that speaks numbers too, because, you know, in our profession, how often do we think um, that we have to make like spur of the moment decisions, right? Uh, something All the happens, time. Right? Something happens in the class and we think we have to say, oh, Vito, what are you doing? You know, it has to be, yeah. I think that's massive to take a moment and, 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 and wait for some guidance or even take a moment for a breath, take, you know, uh, I think that's some a, a really powerful advice for everybody um, that it doesn't need to be spur of the moment. That's I, I re, that really touched me. Thank you. And one thing is that I sort of feel as teachers, we're not allowed to make mistakes. We have to be the expert in the room. We have to be the parent, the expert parent, the expert social worker, the expert medic, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we have to be flawless. And as soon as we make a mistake, uh, you know, disaster is going to happen. But it rarely does. <laughs> well, and, and you know what, Chris and I talked about that in our episode on burnout, that oh. that that is one thing that teachers have this expectation that they have to be everything to everyone all the time. And you can't. And what's, no. what's really interesting about it, too, at least in my experience, Every um, every administrator that I've ever known in my entire career has always said to me, like, hey, you know, we got your back. Like, it's not always going to be the best lesson. It's the, it's not like we're not told, A, that uh, we're going to make mistakes <laughs> and, and B, that it, it's okay because we're supported. And yet we have this thought. So like we, we do. You go in. And I don't know a teacher who doesn't think like, I got to be perfect today. All, you know, even yeah. though we're told time and time again, we don't have to be. So it's a really interesting wall that we've put up. Uh, but I do think, I do think taking that moment, like you said, is one that can start chipping away at those bricks. Yeah. And, and taking a moment or pausing, it does something to the room as well, because they're expecting a reaction, but then we've paused and we've, and the, that's sort of a mindfulness thing. I guess they're all attentive in that pause there. They're waiting to see what we're gonna do next. And that's the best chance we have for surprise. You know, do the unexpected <laughs> and be creative that way. And I find that those ideas come after the pause. If, I, if I'm trying to react too quickly, I don't have that chance for creativity. I get into that script, that that's based on the past or yeah. Um, um, Having those administrators that you talked about, the supportive administrators. Oh my goodness. That's key. Oh sure. yeah. Yep. Ab absolutely. Uh, now you, you mentioned mindfulness as part of your, the students pausing to recognize that. And one big thing that, that you, you do and do it so well is um meditation and i know you have your own podcast where you do it as well and okay. we'll, talk, we'll talk about your uh, your books specifically on the search and and we could talk about that in a second um mm -hmm. but meditation was something you did every friday with your students yeah. it was meditation fridays uh can you can you talk to us about that like what what were you doing what were the results of it like what was i um what benefits did you see I was experimenting with meditation on my own um, here and there and um, ambient music. And I thought those could be helpful 
because um, people are pretty stressed and um, what would be a good way to wind down at the end of the week. And I also noticed that a lot of the grade 12s were skipping on Friday. So if I could connect with them through meditation, maybe they'd show up on Fridays. And it worked. It worked. A lot of the kids said, uh, I'm just here for the meditation. And then they'd sign out after period two or whatever. <laughs> but at least I got them to in the building on Friday, some of those guys and girls. Uh, but um, And I found once I started, I'd write a script for myself for the meditation. And then I just kind of watched the room and to see if it was working, you know, to see if the kids were responding to it or if they were fidgeting or whatever. And then I thought, oh, I might need to go in another area. And I always wanted to talk about something that related to their experience as teenagers because um, I thought it would um, really be meaningful for them in that sense. So I tried to look at um, relationships and um, their interactions with adults, be it parents or uh, the boss at work or teachers, whatever. Um, whatever, and then I would also ask them for their feedback. You know, what what's bothering you today? Oh, I'm stressed about the exam. Okay, the meditation is about stress. And then we'd break down the concept of time and uh, how uh, the habits we've developed are there to get us through the unknown. Um, so everything they've done up to the point of that test has gotten them ready for the test. They've studied, they've done all the right things. So guess what? They're going to succeed. It's a cause and effect. It's, uh, yeah, the law, basic laws of uh, cause and effect. And um, so they think about it. And then I'd get them to visualize actually writing the test and to think of possible questions that could be on the test and all those types of things. And it would help to lower the anxiety somewhat. Um, my goodness, um, anxiety is huge these days. It's as since 2002, it's just been more and more each year since I started teaching, I find. More self-harm, more um, whatever the symptoms manifest as. It's just more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it speaks volumes to the fact that your students would show up to school on Friday to do the meditation. Um, that that's huge. Like, I mean, that already is your feedback. What other feedback have students given to you regarding your meditations? Because I know yours, you script them, like you said, you script them yourself. Yeah, and, that, I scripted them for the first uh, two, three years. And then after that, I was just able to do it without a script, just to kind of just let it happen. And it always flowed. It was, yeah, I just got to trust um that presence of the spirit in the room or whatever you want to call it um, to guide the meditation where it needs to go. And I might be saying something that is helping someone who has not told me that they're dealing with something, but it, it reached them just because, you know, I wouldn't say it was coincidence, but yeah. Um, so, go ahead. So how do you prepare uh, a room if you're doing a meditation like this, especially one that's obviously getting some really positive feedback? Um, what do you do aside from either scripting it or or kind of going free verse? Um, but how do you prepare that space so that it becomes a, a place where meditation can happen? Um, like, what does that look like? I'm one of your grade 12 students. What am I walking into? Yeah, uh, lights out. I use a microphone so that I can... I don't have to shout, but they can still hear me really clearly. Um, if it, they're the type of person that can't sit still for a while, they can walk at the back of the room, like just take that sort of walking meditation, small steps, turning, walking, turning. Um, if they like to draw, they can draw during the meditation. They don't have to, they don't have to close their eyes. They can uh, keep their eyes open. They can fall asleep if they want, and it, the meditation will give them what they need uh, automatically. So, so we're not looking uh, at something that's completely prescribed. Everyone's doing that. No, and uh, and sometimes sometimes they'll sleep, sometimes they'll draw. It's it's up to them what they want to do. Mm -hmm. I, I um, love that. Yeah, 
And the one reason I, I, I continue to do it in the classroom is because uh, years later, I still have a lot of former students uh, on Facebook and the, they'll say to me, you know, I don't remember what you taught me, but I remember the meditation classes yeah. and some of them still meditate. So that's, I'll just never let that go. You know, I'll always keep that in the class. Amazing. Amazing. And, and I'm going to jump here to where this leads into your, your books. Of, it's a series you have. And the first one, Enter the Witness. And I remember some of your student feedback was like, wow, this reminds me of some of your meditations in the classroom. Uh, but really, the, the series, which I've had the privilege of reading, and you sent me our copies and I really appreciate them. It's, it's really a journey of spiritual discovery. Uh, would you be willing to talk about those for a minute? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm seeing, I don't know, maybe it's not, I think it happens in every generation, but I, I always see people turning away from um, organized or institutional forms of religion. Uh, they, they describe themselves as spiritual, I guess. And there's a, I guess there's a term for them now. They're referred to as nuns. Um, okay. Yeah. No, no, no I, religious I, I, affiliation. And there's another group called Duns. They were formerly religious, but have left their congregations. And uh, so I wanted to provide them with something that would uh, talk about or uh, reveal spiritual principles and universal principles without the use of religious language. Um, something that they could read and not associated with any baggage they might have with uh, religion or, you know, uh, other institutions, cults, whatever. So I, I sort of arrange it in a way where there's this group of entities called the gathering and they're contacting the reader. Uh, the person picks up the book and I wanted it to be kind of a, a, a dialogue between the book and the reader so that the reader might feel that the book is talking to them personally. I don't know if every reader gets that sense, but that, that's my goal anyways. And um, the first book is a psychological approach and it's a white cover, which is the Yang. And the next book is a black cover and it's more, um, more yin oriented or mystical uh, concepts are uh, promoted in that book, but without calling them those typical things that they're called in religious books or um, other spiritual books or the New Age, I guess you could call them. Uh, so yeah, I, I sort of subtly using um, some imagery, some colors like the yin and the yang, and uh, to because they may be uh, familiar to the readers on some level. Uh, that can connect with uh, the subconscious. Let's go there. And uh, now the the next series, um, the there is nowhere else. Um, I've got book one and book two out now. It seems there was a a type of character mentioned in the second book. Reference point that spoke about invisibles and uh, these uh, later books. Uh, relate to contact from invisibles who are currently incarnated uh, on the earth, but they're able to contact their um, charges, I guess, their their students um, through the book or through dreams. Uh, I call that like metadata that as opposed to uh, information that's conscious. So yeah, I'm work I guess that's kind of where I'm working at now is filling in the gaps of people who are searching for meaning but don't want the religious route, but they can still find it somewhere else. Now maybe this might be beyond the scope of this podcast, really, but if I'm still searching within an organized religion, um, would would I I don't even know the question I'm trying to ask right now. <laughs> you know, I I, 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 I similarities or parallels in my books. Yeah. You'd say, oh, that's this, or oh, that, that reminds me of that parable. 
or you know uh, there are links definitely yeah. but they're not explicit okay okay yeah because let's say i'm just um i'm trying to find the word where you're the illusion of your religion is kind of shattered you're kind of what's what's the word come on we're writers here <laughs> not dissuaded but you're disillusioned with, yes, disillusioned. disillusioned thank you so you're kind of disillusioned <laughs> with what's happening but you're still on the search uh within yeah. so you, you would still find you don't give up on it. yeah okay, you don't so you, give up yeah so you still find the connections the, there yeah and it talks about reality there's a lot of uh there's a lot of talk about reality in my books that reality is an illusion which re reflects on hindu teachings of maya but it also relates psychologically to the illusions that we have about ourselves. Like we might think, hey, I'm a nice guy. But then you start to really examine your behaviors and you realize maybe I need to improve in some ways or maybe I need to apologize to someone. Or Yeah, so we're looking at personal illusions as well as cosmic ones. And yeah, I'd like the writing to kind of look at both both aspects of the the reading a personal and a communal I, I guess on a larger scale we've got huge illusions about you know the world and how it should function but why are so many people starving you know and there are problems with this illusion and maybe we could trade it for a better one well it seems as though in this search that we're all in to find our meaning to find who we are to make our world a better place that uh, both enter the witness and reference point really seem like they're trying to, you know, put some markers on this map that we're writing with each step, um, yeah. you know, to really kind of start to look back and think these are the experiences from my life. And I'm getting something from this that is pointing me in a new direction. So maybe, maybe it's a way on that search that we can find, uh, you know, one, one of the things I've gotten from just our conversation tonight is, is really that, you know, all the roads that you take are going to lead you to where you're supposed to be, whether it's you being in totally different references and in, uh, industries and countries, but they've brought you to be this person who's on his path, who's trying to make the world a better place and positively influence young people in the classroom. Um, and, and it really does seem as though enter the witness and reference point, try to really put some things to look at for people who maybe aren't on their journey as far as other people so that they can make better choices so that they can, uh, you know, choose better paths. Uh, you know, and that even goes back to what you were saying about some of the ambitions that some young people have nowadays. Uh, if they get an opportunity to really sit down and actually think about these things. And like you said, some people, they have issues for one reason or another with institutionalized religion you know, it's giving the the reader an opportunity to really say, okay, I might have these hangups, but these are some interesting ideas. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, I think what's, uh, there's that old Greek expression, know thyself. And um, in my books, I, I relate to the self as, as like who we really are. There's, we are our persons, but our persons are an aspect of ourself. Um, I guess in New Age, they would call it a higher self or whatever. And in religions, we could call it the Christ or... Um, well, I remember one time when I first started teaching, I went to a workshop and someone was telling me how the curriculum is, is moving in, a, in such a way that it began in a, an exclusive way that only we have the answers to um, to um, the afterlife or whatever you want to call it. And now we're in the midst of a phase known as an inclusive version where it says that Christ is present in all religions. And then uh, there's a, a plan for a future model of the curriculum, which is a pluralist model that says all roads lead to Christ. And so it, I guess when that time comes, maybe students will be like, well, this is my path that I'm taking. I know that Christ is part of this path. I can find him in it. And it's going to lead me ultimately to him in the end. 
So they're like you said, many roads uh, leading to one destination. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I like it. it's heavy, but it's heavy, and 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 it's what I, I think. I think it's what a lot of young people need. Validation um, for what they're doing. There's there's a. Like we talked about the flashing lights earlier in the, in the conversation, there's a lot of flashing lights that are easy to pick out and follow. Um, yeah. Not all of them are, are going to give you the meat and potatoes of life. No, no, no. And, and you know, and, you could pick up those books right now on Amazon. The, the ebooks right now are going for, what, three three bucks a piece, I think. Um, they're, they're really, really accessible. Um, so really check that out. Now, uh, one thing that I wanted to kind of pivot towards, and this is kind of kind of be a self, the, the self, and and know thyself. Um, I guess I'm going to use that as a transition point here. You had mentioned to me in an email that you don't feel that you're the same teacher you once were, and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what that's about. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, it's partly. Uh, to do with feeling relevant or irrelevant to the lives of the students right now, uh, being able to connect with them in some way so that I can make them feel that they're definitely on on the journey and it's leading them in the right direction. Uh, they're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. Uh, keep going, you know, give them some validation and they'll have small... Um, experiences of success and to focus on those small uh, successes along the way um and then there's uh as as i'm getting older i guess i'm just i'm and don't feel like i have quite the energy level that's needed for the room yeah uh i'm i'm needing I'm, i guess i'm looking for more mellow surroundings <laughs> but uh it's got a lot of energy in grade seven and eight Yes, they do. Yes, well, absolutely. That that energy level is hard enough for a young person to keep up with, and for someone who especially started his career much uh, later on than most teachers do, I, I I can see that it's taxing. Do you think that if you were to jump back into the high school realm, that it would be a different story? Um, hmm. it'd be worth a try. I'd like to try it. Uh, last year, I was actually, uh, I had some work accommodations. Um, so I was placed into the library for a year, which was fantastic. So I was just still able to work with students. Uh, and um, the environment was really, it was nice and quiet. And and uh, they could even, when supply teachers were in short uh, supply, uh, the principal able to send a class down to the library to work there and I could supervise them as a teacher whereas if I was a librarian I wouldn't have been able to do that so teacher librarian I think I don't know I really I really like that position but the union the QP union said no we want a QP member in that position so um, I was removed from the library so yeah we'll see what happens this fall you can say that again <laughs> You can absolutely. We we will see what happens. <laughs> uh, we're we're all waiting to see what happens on that one. Um, uh, yeah, just just I, I think it'd be really neat if you made that jump back because seven eight there definitely is a different maturity and energy level at that age than the grade nine. Like even that jump is huge. Yeah, it's as, huge huge and then you get to grade 12 and it's like oh okay I'm, I'm dealing with adults now people coming into the adult world and, and so very different uh from that point of view so I, i'd be curious to see especially from your wisdom and your point of view um if you were to jump back in that high school realm may, maybe that could be your mellow way out again yeah maybe that could be the answer yeah i, I think that. it's I, I think it's really interesting um because I think it takes a lot of bravery uh, and a lot of courage to to say that. Because who uh, who who you know I think I think we all kind of feel that way sometimes. 
um, maybe for some more prolonged than others, but I think that's a powerful statement to own. So thank you for sharing that with us. I guess it's just, uh, yeah, we sort of realize where do I fit best or where can I feel like I'm doing the most good? Um, although we can never know, uh, we're always planting seeds and who knows when those seeds are going to take root and grow and yeah. Um, it might be 10, 20 years. I, I remember well, the only religion class I remember from high school is the grade 11 world religions. And uh, it was just so amazing to me, all those different uh, beliefs and faiths. And thank goodness um, for my old teacher, Miss Cannon, she gave me a foundation that helped me a lot when I got to Saudi Arabia. I had some uh, preparation for Islam. Wow. wow. And, and especially now, like, we are in a pluralistic society where you never, you, you don't know the religious beliefs of your neighbor. And to be able to say, oh, I can, I at least know something. Yeah, like, it, it's, um, it's the first step in the door to making connections with, um, yeah, amazing people. And we have a lot to learn from different faiths. I mean, each of them has strengths and weaknesses and yeah, we can, we can take things um, from there and enrich our own experience. I was tempted uh, when I was in Riyadh, uh, uh, someone recommended that I would become, I would be a good Muslim, that I should convert. And I thought, <laughs> I, thought well, I don't know, uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, <laughs> That I want to do that. He says, "Well, um, the king will pay you a hundred thousand dollars U.S. if you convert to Islam." Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, "Well, that's interesting, yeah." And um, then I was getting—I was single the first time I was there, and there were uh, Saudi women who worked in the hospital with me, and they said, "Oh, I would like you to meet my sister. Maybe you could marry my sister." And I asked, "Well," I don't know, would I have to convert to Islam? And she said, oh, yes, it's no problem. And you get lots of money. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's all these opportunities to convert. And temptation was definitely there. Uh, not so much to marry, but uh, the cash sounded pretty good. But then I thought, but if I was to convert back to Catholicism, the penalty would be death. I don't think I'm interested in that. So, <laughs> yeah. If you leave the Islamic faith in Saudi Arabia, the penalty is death. So, And is that it's still today or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The death penalty for drugs, adultery, murder, and uh, renouncing your faith. Wow. Well, well that's a culture shock. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah. you know, you think about, uh, you know, how often how, how religions spoke about uh, openly sometimes in, in kind of Western culture. And, and wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Real eye opener. Let's see that. But uh, working with a lot of expats, a lot of Americans, Australians and stuff. So we we all had a really great experience. And uh, the hospital was it was top notch. I'd never worked in a place that good. Uh, because it was the hospital for the royal family, so they had the best of the best of everything. Wow, I've had friends who have taught over there, and and it's it's nothing but but praise, nothing but really good things they've said. Oh yeah, they loved it, loved it. Oh, excellent! I'm glad they like it there. I, I, I was, I, I once friend who ahead. went over there and just stayed. How long? As far as I know, they're still there. And that was like 10 years ago. They'll never come back. They'll no. probably stay forever. <laughs> yeah. I heard once you're there 10 years, it's really hard to come back after that. I mean, even yeah. after four years, after my second time, it was like reverse culture shock. Well, things I... were just moving. Things were moving so quickly here. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, Michael, really, really appreciate you joining us today for this conversation i think we went in quite a few different directions and absolutely 
there there were some really heavy points that we we touched upon, right, Chris? I hope you they know, weren't too heavy. Uh, no, I loved it, and and I'm gonna give you you know Paulson's points for the show. Um, yes. I, I what I really got from you tonight, and I thank you for it. Is uh, everyone's searching? Get used to the symptoms so that you can see them in others and see them in yourselves. Um, hey, be the real deal because your students will be able to tell if they're not. Um, another great point from this evening: serious doesn't mean scary. Serious doesn't have to mean scary. Um, and I think that's huge when we talk about management, when we talk about presence in the classroom, when we talk about running that script. Um, hey, too much control can ruin something amazing. You know, when you talk about how you need to let go, you need to make it for them. Too much control can ruin something amazing. And when, and when a reaction is expected, let's do the unexpected and not be afraid to think deep on ourselves and our lives. Thanks, man. That's great. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I recommend. I recommend if you're a male teacher in the religion classroom, grow a beard. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and um, I can't thank you enough for for your conversation. You gave us a lot to chew on tonight, and um, <laughs> pick up those two books. Uh, about three bucks each on Amazon for the for the Kindle edition, um, and enter the witness and reference point. They sound incredible. And Michael, you're still teaching, and you're still teaching us. You're still humbling me. So uh, let me tell you, you have found your path, my friend. So thank you. Thanks for giving me this chance, and uh, hope to see you guys again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us again for another episode of The Unapologists. Join us next week where we'll share good ideas, talk to great people, and talk about the story of teaching as it happens. We have Christopher Polson, Vito McKenzie, and our guest Michael Hurd. Thank you so much, and have a great week. Podcast.